Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures for the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Today, I'm with Nancy Giordano, strategic futurist and founder of Play Big Inc., where she helps enterprise leaders meet the escalating expectations of a fast-changing world. She is also the author of Leadering, The Ways Visionary Leaders Play Bigger. Welcome to the show, Nancy. Well, hello. Great to be here. So let's start off with a little story from you about how you got started. Uh, you know, it's funny because I always uh, try and contain this into a very short story, even though it's got its own long twists and turns. But interestingly, you know, I haven't really changed direction so much. I have deepened my work and found my way to uh, unique expressions of it. But at the end of the day, it's always started from the very beginning. I'm really interested in ideas. I'm really interested in releasing potential and imagination and being able to create something that's really extraordinary. Um, and I'm always interested in getting closer and closer to the point of impact. So I think the thread in my work is that I get very excited about something. And then when I hit an impasse and I get frustrated, I go figure out how to go move that block and go create the next thing that needs to be created or put my energy in some place to um, relieve that frustration. So that would probably have been the biggest guiding force to get to where I am now, which is that I help leaders and organizations and audiences around the world uh, build the capacity to use their resources to build a better next. I love that idea. That's why I describe my role as a strategic futurist. Right? It's not just about forecasting. It is about actually activating to build a better next. And so uh, right now, the work is really around helping people reframe risk and become much better stewards of their resources in a way that they have more confidence moving forward. I love that idea of better next. If we could only all focus on the better next. Right? I mean, that's the whole thing. It's like, and then it came out of this conversation, uh, certainly uh, spurred by the pandemic, about how do we get back to normal? And like, why would we want to get back to normal? There were so many breakdowns that we hadn't addressed. Uh, we have this opportunity now, and it's really not just because of the pandemic. It has to do with the confluence of technological and cultural change that we will have an opportunity to rebuild almost every single system and every institution of which we have become you know, overly familiar and seen as not always working well for everyone. So if we have this opportunity to rethink everything from education to financial systems to the way food is grown and distributed to, uh, you know, how things are manufactured, et cetera, et cetera, why would we not want to do it in a way that holds people better? We have this opportunity to build a strong and better next in which everyone thrives, not just a few. You know, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because so often our clients will come to us and tell us they need to uh, learn how to have better virtual meetings. And then, you know, the thing that, that we know is that the real problem is that they were having poor meetings to begin with <laughs> and the, the technology is just exacerbating those trends because they got so accustomed to having these bad experiences that it was just normal. But you go into this new environment and they start noticing how dysfunctional all this stuff is and they're, they're starting to critique it, right? Exactly. And that's the opportunity inside every organization. What we're finding is those that had actually invested in some of those good practices beforehand, whether it's understanding their purpose as an organization or really thinking about the communication inside their organization and thinking about how they you know, invested in, in strong values and communicated again, those values throughout the organization are able to work in a distributed way much more effectively than the organizations who didn't invest in any of that work prior. 
So it goes back to what we're seeing is it's exposing practices that were really strong and making them even stronger, I think, in many ways, or exposing the ones that were weak and realizing that they weren't going to last much longer anyway. So let's let's talk a little bit about leadering and how some of your thinking and advice can help companies lean into better practices. Well, I just, again, as a strategist, I want to go solve problems. Like I get excited about the strategic opportunity that we have. And we work with a lot of really big, you know, Fortune, whatever. 100, 500, whatever they are, big, huge organizations to try and solve a strategic problem. And we could see this amazing opportunity as you look to the future. Like the question, really, there's a two-question compass that we use to do all of our strategic work, which is what does the future need and expect of you? And then what are you unique position to create and contribute to that? If you could just marry those two things together, it becomes really clear. So instead of having a map to an outdated future, you're able to use that as a compass to navigate a, a constantly evolving and changing future. But what we found is when we went in and used that compass with you know huge organizations with tremendous resources, they still could not see the opportunity. Like it was really clear to us what the future needed and expected, and it was really clear to us what they were in a unique position to create and contribute to that as a team, as an organization, even as an industry. Um, but they couldn't see the opportunity, and I kept trying to figure out why. Like, why are people so stuck? Like, we could fly it in with a golden plane with a big red bow, and they still don't believe it. And so I kept trying to work backwards to how do we build organizational capacity to be able to understand and take in and absorb new information and respond to it that was really the breakdown. And at one point, actually, I got so frustrated with uh, existing organizations that couldn't do that, that I jumped and leaped, leapt over to the world of high technology and uh, worked with an artificial intelligence startup here in Austin um, five or so years ago, and really learned a lot about software, AI, a startup, and culture and talent, which is really the part that I was thinking about. How do you build an organization for the future? Like, how do you build a trillion-dollar company that operates really differently. And uh, through all that thinking, I just realized that there are ways in which we can just shift our mindset. If we don't, it's not about what we know, it's about how we know, right? What we, like how we think versus what we think. And uh, so I just started talking more about that and, and, and going around the world and speaking about it because there are so many things that we are unprepared for in terms of technological and cultural change that is coming right around the corner. And so I'm, I've decided just so how do I package that in a way so people can hear it? And really what it came down to is shifting our mindset from this idea of leadership as a noun that's static and hierarchical and closed and designed very specifically to, you know, root out variability so that we can consistently scale and get to quarterly profit goals to instead uh, think about it as a verb, leadering, in which it is a dynamic mindset that is, it's a mindset as opposed to an approach, right? And it is inclusive and it is caring and it is adaptive and it is 100% focused on constant innovation and experimentation or in order to drive long-term sustainable value. So we're basically flipping it, right? I love this idea of, you know, the verb is, is not static. And, right. You know, it's not this thing that is, it's not a destination you get to and you've now been given the um, the promotion. It's no, it's something that's continuous and you invest in. Totally. It's not a playbook. I mean, that's really, leadership was a playbook and we had Six Sigma and we had best practices. We talked about it in terms of an optimization playbook, right? In order to be able to optimize for efficiency and for scaling and for growth and consistent growth. And what we're seeing is that that is breaking down. A, it's breaking down just in the 20th century. If you can look at all the things that have, the, the externalities that have not been accounted for, whether it's environmental or ecological or physical health or, you know, constant uh, and growing inequality. So the, the playbook was already outdated, but then you throw it on top of the fact that we're going to have these exponential technologies that allow us to play very, very differently. It's a completely different physics in this new world we're heading into. And so that playbook is completely outdated and it's dangerous. If we apply 20th century mindset to a 21st century world, we're going to be in a much more hurt 
So how can we think about a way in which business and society can thrive together? And it is to be in a place of constant learning. And it is to be in a place of much more caring. And it is to be in a place of we think about long-term value creation as opposed to short-term profitability growth. Yeah, that short-term thinking is super detrimental. And especially when the more and more of a complex environment that we find ourselves in, it's like, wow, if you optimize for the short term and you expect that to be repeatable. (laughs) Exactly. Well, it it isn't, right? And so you end up really frustrated and disappointed that you can't be. And again, when we do that, we don't think about the externalities, either that we want to make sure that we avoid or that we can ensure in a healthy way. Like if you're actually trying to solve for some of the bigger long-term issues, you actually have much more opportunity when you move ahead. So the idea is that you actually are thinking more long-term. So that's what I'm saying. We're flipping it from long R&D cycles in order to be able to have short-term profitability and only think about this in quarterly goals to the idea that we have constant innovation and experimentation in order to have long-term success that actually thinks about it across generations. It's not just for the next quarter, but it's actually thinking about what the world will be like for our kids. When you think about what will artificial intelligence and all these really, you know, bioengineering and and really quite profound technologies will make possible, we need to think about it more long-term. That's interesting. I didn't realize that it's actually flipping both sides. It's not only saying let's not focus on these long projects Let's do the short-term experiments, but that's actually going to give us long-term results rather than right. short-term results. Yeah. yeah. It ensures our long-term viability. The calculus makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And that's that's exactly what we're trying to do is flip all of the thinking. So again, I talk a lot about risk. At the end of the day, I think where people really get stuck is that you know all the practices and, and or not practices, but approaches and structures that were put in place in the 20th century to mitigate for risk and keep us safe and sound are all the things that are making us vulnerable now. And so how do I shift that thinking? That silos, which we thought protected us, are now the thing that keep information from being able to flow. Um, from incremental thinking, the idea that we just nudge things, you know, a little bit of percentage at a time is actually the thing that, that doesn't allow us to see huge opportunities and audacious places to to play and to invest. That we think that the person with the most experience and tenure in the room is the person who's got the most insight, which is how our board of directors are all structured. And the reality is, is the people who are closest to our customer or closest to new information that could be very young and very new, who might have tremendous insight that we want to be able to act upon. So all these practices, like I say, that we built in the 20th century to be able to mitigate risk are now the ones that are creating vulnerability and need to be rethought in order to keep us safe in a very different way. And I want to come back to a point you made a little earlier around how the advancements in technology is, uh, you know, it's changing the physics that, uh, that we're having to account for. And it reminded me of something we spoke about in the pre-show chat around the physics that we are um, having to consider when we convene people and when we design and prepare for collaborations. And so I'm curious to hear, think about you know, what physics are we concerned about? Well, I think that, you know, the physics on the technology side is that things are happening so fast and they're so exponential and we're not prepared for exponential change or exponential impact. When you realize that all of a sudden you can create something that a billion people can use in a very short period of time, you have to really think through that. Or you think about machine learning and how it takes in data and actually drifts and shifts as a result of what it's learning, that we have to really pay attention to that. It's not just plug and play software. So partly we're recognizing this stuff is just so much more dynamic and uh, it sort of takes its own shape. And as these things become so big and grow so fast. So that's part of it. But because of that, people then feel so overwhelmed and scared of change and afraid of making a big mistake, which is why then we brought bring them in to do these collaborative sessions. And I think this idea of psychological safety has never been more important. 
right? For two reasons. One, again, that people feel really scared of change. They're really worried about their impact. And the second is that we're bringing often mo more cross-functional players together or a broader ecosystem together. We're not just bringing the team that's been together forever. We're realizing the need for diverse thinking and diverse input. And so how do we learn to challenge each other's long-held assumptions when we come from different backgrounds or different parts of the industry even? And uh, so we have to create space, I think, for people to work together where they feel safe being able to throw out ideas, feel safe being able to be seen, all that kind of stuff, and set the expectation that we're not just doing it the same old way. Because the other thing, you have a skepticism. People have done this a million times, and the ideas never went anywhere, and so why should I put it out there again, right? We really have to break through the inertia uh, that people also feel. And so, you know, when, when we've designed stuff like that, I think about every single touch point as a place to be able to invite people into a different kind of experience and different kind of conversation from the way the invitation is written to I have designed like completely crazy agendas that have one goal in mind. It's to ensure that people feel like their time is going to be well spent, but it doesn't in any way tell them exactly how that time is going to be allocated across. Like if we don't tell them what's going to happen in, you know, at 9am and 11am and at 1pm and at 4pm in terms of the actual experiences. We just make sure that they know that we're using their time very wisely and that there will be an output that they're proud of at the end. Because that's really what they care about, right? Yeah, expectations matter. And people want to know how to show up, what's going to happen, and where they're going to be at the end. Yeah, but we think that the way, that historically, the way many meeting planners have done that before, that means that we need to give them tons and tons of detail about everything that's going to happen so people can then presume to, to understand how the thing is going to unfold. And the reality is that's not very useful. What they want to know is, to your point, if they need to do any homework, what the kind of expectations will be when they get in there, when they can take a call, if they need to make a call or not, and what the output will be at the end. But they don't need to know exactly how the you know, well, how the train's going to take the ride. That's right. And if you're really embracing the emergent phenomenon and leaning into what happens, you probably are deviating from the agenda. And exactly. there's lots of attendees that don't do so well with that because they think that something's going wrong. Exactly. And <laughs> and so if you don't show that to them, they never know. <laughs> exactly. But you, but they do know that there are these like goals that we're trying to hit or certain kinds of things that we're going to have. Like this is a place where we're going to have tremendous you know, provocation or input or whatever. I forgot exactly how we name some of those things. But we work hard to ensure that people feel, again, secure walking in. Like we want them to feel safe and supported and well held walking in because I think otherwise people are so on guard that they can't let themselves actually go play but we don't give them every single step because exactly right that emergence is hugely important right and things can go in completely different directions and people and then this idea that you failed as opposed to actually you've learned along mm. the way how to do this more effectively and how to get to the output better or maybe there's a completely different output you realize halfway through the experience that you actually need you know being able to be agile uh, it's part of it. And then I think that also there's a, a tremendous irony where people usually want to have these experiences so they can have breakthrough ideas and learn how to be more agile, but they want everything spelled out in every single step. Mm. <laughs> and I run into yeah. that a lot. I have a lot of people who come to me and want to give a keynote talk about how to get people out of their comfort zone, but they would like to see the talk a week ahead of time. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what? You guys don't get to have any more insight than the people that you're trying to inspire, right? You That's need to amazing. live what it is that you are, are preaching. But again, I think that it's just an international habit because we want to control the outcome. And I think what we're trying to help them do is learn that they can have confidence in the outcome without having to control the outcome. Those are two different things. You know, it's, it, this reminds me of when we're teaching agendas, one of the first things I tell them is so many meetings are agendaless, and that's a major problem. And the common advice is like, you got to have agendas. But most of the time, those people are talking about a list of topics. And ideally, we're not focusing on lists of topics. We're focusing on how we're going to get to point A to point B. Right. And then ideally, to dovetail on what you were 
talking about around these moments that you're making them aware of, ideally those are assessment points. So if these are points that we need to get to along the way, how do we know we got there? And if we don't design in a way to determine that, then we'll never know. We're just kind of, you know, finger in the air kind of thing. Well, I mean, I just just think about it this way and say, instead of having a vertical agenda that everything's spelled out A, B, C, D, E, we actually have horizontal agendas that look like maps that take you on a journey. And I That's think right. that people then understand that, that just by flipping the agenda from a vertical to horizontal already sends a signal that we're approaching this from a different place and that we're going to hold you in a different way throughout this experience. I love that. It's like not only are we reframing it conceptually, but we're going to visually reframe it. Yeah. But if that's what I'm saying. Every one of those cues, Douglas, you know this, is the thing that then you go to unconsciously and says, does this make, like, is this congruent with what it is that they're asking me to do? If they're asking me to think differently and they show me the agenda looks differently, then maybe this is actually something that's going to feel different, right? Or, again, there's some a zillion of those kinds of touch points that we can do, but I feel like each one of them signals in some way congruence around it and builds trust around the outcome that we want people to have. You know, uh, in in the pre-chat, you were also mentioning, you know, it's not about the future of work. It's the future of these kind of moments and intersections and and immediately thought it's like the future of collaboration. And it just took me to a really special place that hadn't thought about it in that way before. And so I think the listeners would, would find it interesting to just hear you elaborate on that a bit. Well, I mean, I think that when you, again, part of what I was saying earlier, part of the future of collaborations that we're bringing in more and more diverse voices into it. And so we have to figure out how do we build a sense of a personal safety when you have that many different kinds of people, different backgrounds who are challenging the ideas and the thinking. It's just, it's going to feel different. Uh, but then I go back to, again, how do we create confidence without creating this need to control? So I'll just, I'll just give, I guess, the best example, which is that we designed a conference uh, for community banks and credit unions with a company in town here called Casasa, who I love very, very much. They're really a software company, a fintech, martech company that's designed to help empower community banks and credit unions to stay around. But these folks often have a built-in resistance around change, right? They've done what it is they've done for a long time. They're usually in smaller communities. They don't see the rate of change quite so quickly. They don't realize how quickly mega banks are encroaching and building solutions for customers that are more tech savvy. And so over the years, we kept trying to figure out, like, how do we really break through? And what we realized is, like, the the badge like when you first show up to a conference and you get your you, you register and you get your badge that sort of signals that you're you know you're there um, we actually built a very distinct and strategic path to badge that you had to go through three stations before it is that you actually got to your badge right and one had to do with headlines that you saw from all these different things one had to be a pledge where you actually put a sticker on a map and the other thing had to do something else i forgot but they're like one of it was information one was empowerment and one was sort of like a pledge so by the time you got your badge you were enrolled like you were part of the movement. You weren't just passively going to be taking in more information. And that felt uh, very significant, right? That we were using that experience of inviting you into this exper- into this event as um, a, um, again, as a, as a strategic uh, leverage point, but really this idea that we were anointing and inviting you into the movement and you were actively participating and saying, yes, I want to be part of it. I love that. You know, you, had different, you have a different relationship with the content from that minute. Yeah, and the participation level is high out of the gate, right? It's like, you know, you started it off with the intention and the purpose, and, and that was very clear in the opener. It's like, the, it reminds me of the power of moments where, you know, the, Disney studied how to calculate people's, like, impression of an event, and it's the beginning, 
the end and some you know peak moment and so right. if you start off with something that captures their hearts and minds you, you you're already you well know. and so and you can imagine the difference right between doing that and having them actively experience something walking to the badge versus having the you know the opening speaker say it's really important that we ask you to think differently about the category and the blah 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 blah, blah. like it's just you know it's a, it's a, yes it's the same information but we made it very visceral and we enrolled people in it so that by the time that they sort of opted in for you know, the event, they were already prepared for what the purpose was without having to express it in very traditional ways. Amazing. I love the, I love this idea of designing the threshold. It's really cool. Yeah, right? Yeah, that's a nice way of phrasing it. Actually, it's a really beautiful way of phrasing it. Uh, but that's the kind of thinking that we've done for all of the events that I've ever designed or been a part of because I feel like that's such an important moment. Like, so agendas, like, again, the invitation is a really hugely important portion. The agenda is a really important moment. The threshold and the invitation, the walking in to if you get to do it in a physical space. And we haven't done any of that, I think, virtually, probably as well as we might imagine we could as we move forward. One of the things I keep you know, sharing with people is that we are in this moment right now where we're adapting to video conferences and video events. And we're really grateful that we have this opportunity to do this. 20 years ago, we would not have had this capacity. But imagine, you know, five years into the future or 10 years into the future, or even 20 years into the future, this will look like so rudimentary when we start yes. to get so much better at being able to, you know, use these digital experiences with one another, whether we're doing it in virtual reality, whether or not we're doing it with AR, whether or not we're doing it with um, all kinds of ways in which we can engage each other. Like we're going to learn so much. This is a period of extraordinary innovation right now because we're grateful for what we have, but we're seeing all the gaps that can still be filled. I'm excited to see what comes next. 100%. I've been comparing this to, I'm about to show my age here, but I've been comparing this to when e-commerce in the late 90s, Yeah, you know, it worked. You could buy stuff and lots of people started doing it. But man, it ain't it, like nowadays when you can order food on your phone with a credit card and have it show up at your door 15 minutes later. I mean, yeah. the world is completely different. And I, I think you're uh, you're one hundred percent ten five ten years from now, it's going to be unrecognizable. Yeah, and that's why I mean, again, even if you go as far back as twenty years, where you know most of us on this call hopefully would be able to remember prior to having cell phones, right? So you imagine the pandemic hit before we had cell phones or smartphones, before we had mobile and uh, or sorry, before we had cloud services where we were able to share our files so easily, before we had video where we could connect with each other this way or you know, cheap, reliable, easy. Like Skype was the first time that was like magic when Skype came in. We were like, oh my God, this is amazing. Um, forget, you know, before we could imagine what Zoom would feel like. Um, and, uh, or we, and we didn't have social media to be able to share with one another for better or for worse. So all of those things have made it so that we can actually survive this moment quite effectively and still be very productive. Um, but I imagine 20 years from now, we'll look back and think, what the hell were we thinking that this was so great? <laughs> There's going to be all these ways we do things better. What do you mean it took 10 months to create a vaccine? We can do it now in 10 weeks. So um, I, that's what I get excited about is that we're seeing the way I talk a lot about it and why I think leadering again is so important is we're not we're leaving industrial era and we're moving into a productivity era and the productivity that will be created over the next, you know, again, 5, 10, 20, 30 years will be phenomenal. Uh, our ability to be able to accelerate um, the everything that we do and the way that we do it will be so different. The way we, again, grow food will be different. The way that we uh, manufacture things will be different. The way that we think about our clothing will be different. The way that we exchange value and money will be different. Like all oh, those things are going to be so different and have exponential impact. So. so the productivity and momentum are kind of two parts of the same kind of thing. And so I'm curious, I've always been curious how to help teams maintain momentum because I see so often, especially when they're working on innovation projects that are, 
you know, not part of the, the status quo or the managed system, uh, it can be often hard to sustain those things. And so in your work with, with lots of big companies, you know, are there things that you've seen help teams maintain momentum, get unstuck, keep working toward the prize? Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, part of the um, limitation of being the consultant is that you get to come in and you get the moment where you're catalyzing this and getting people very, very excited. And you don't always get to see what it looks like you know, a year later and see if they really continue to do that. But I think that what we have found, um, it's really unlocking that bigger purpose piece. You know, the best way I can describe it is we got uh, my favorite projects ever. We got to work with Nestle Frozen Foods um, almost a decade ago now. And the question originally was, how do we get people to buy more frozen food? And what we found is that there was a much more powerful way of framing that, which is how do we rebuild trust in industrial food? And suddenly when you're on that mission, it's awesome. But um, you're very, very motivated then. And what you realize, again, it goes across all the silos of the organization, so or departments, if you will. So it's not like you've got this manufacturing plant across the street that nobody ever goes to. You've actually got a giant kitchen there that is creating you know, fresh food that's frozen. And you start to imagine how the conference rooms are named. You start to think about how we have our relationships with our you know, quote-unquote vendors, which are actually product partners, how we open those vault of information so that people can see how much we've learned around nutritious food. When we think about um, packaging, when we think about pricing, when we think about you know, the actual ingredients that we source. I mean, there's all these ways in which we build this whole map about how if you think about the 10 or 12 ways in which we don't just like distribute the food, but we're actually figuring out how to make the food more accessible to people. Like just even that reframing from the fact that we're in a distribution strategy to we're an accessibility strategy suddenly opens up all kinds of capacity uh, for people. And I think that's the kind of thing that keeps people motivated and excited. And yeah, they're going to run into headwinds and they're going to run into some skepticism. But part of it, we got the whole organization to be on board so that there would be less of that drag when you got to certain places so you know it's also it's intriguing too because there's a point of view baked into that right just saying that we we need to sell more there's no there's no hypothesis there's no point of view there's no no identification of the real problem it's just right. this desire this want that we have and if we're always just cha- chasing wants that's it's definitely harder to use your word enroll people well that and i think that there was also a missing from that was a responsibility so the idea is, you know, we pushed it all to them. How do we get them to do more? And not realizing that the reason that they aren't doing it is because they don't trust us right now. So that's number one, right? They've been told that these foods are not made with healthy ingredients. So how do we actually make sure that we live up to that? And because they didn't pay attention to the fact that there was this income bifurcation that was happening. And so you had lots of wealthier people with a lot more disposable income that were buying really expensive frozen food at Whole Foods, right? And you had a lot more people that were on SNAP that were told that these were not nutritious items. So we weren't actually meeting the needs. We kept thinking there was still a growing and accessible middle class. And that was, and that's what all these products had been designed for. And the reality was that that shift had happened and we hadn't paid enough attention to it. So it's like I think when you reframe it, it gives you an opportunity to have more agency to create more innovative and better solutions for people that then people are very excited and drawn to, right? As opposed to going just being frustrated that somehow externally things aren't working the way we want. And part of what we talk about is we're moving from um, this desire to control and to dominate to really thinking much more about how do we empower and create agency. So let's talk a little bit about the work you're doing around partnerism and. <laughs> I always love to ask people if there's a meeting or a gathering, ideally meetings, because I like to really focus it in on that atomic unit of like teams coming together to work better together or groups that share some common purpose coming together to get work done. So during our pre-show chat, it dawned on me that that's the meeting that I wanted to hear about. I wanted to see if you could share with our listeners how you came together to uh, convene those folks and 
What kind of structures and methods did you use? Yeah, so this is, I think, the um, an opportunity for real exploration and learning as we move forward, as we have more and more of these opportunities that we can see on the horizon, and we want to be part of the um, acceleration or creation of how do these entities come together. So there's work that's been done by Rianne Eisler for decades. She is um, a socioeconomic theorist and author and attorney and had created something called the Center for Partnership. Uh, studies that I think is becoming the Center for Partnership Systems as of January. Um, But she has really been thinking a lot about um, power structures and had come up with many theories around the fact that, you know, we're in this tug of war constantly between capitalism and socialism, but when you step back and look at them, they're actually both based on a domination framework. It's just a matter of who dominates whom and who's got the power over whom, but the fact is it's still about power over versus power with. So she's been pioneering and thinking a lot about how do we build systems of partnership or what she will call partnerism, which is a movement that I get very excited about and think, yes, that would actually be something if we could actually really reframe how we think about power and how we think about partnership, that would actually open up a tremendous amount of social capacity in our country or in our world when we start to imagine the kinds of systems and the kind of thinking that will be needed moving forward. But what's interesting is that she has this very strong entity called the Center for Partnership Studies or Systems, um, but there was this movement that we wanted to create around partnerism. And so a group of us were drawn to this work and came together as a team to further the work, we've um, built a website called partnerism.org um, with uh, CPS's uh, involvement and blessing. But we're this unique entity where we aren't actually employed by the center and we aren't just volunteers of the center. What we really realize is that we're investors in this movement. And I think this idea that we're moving from like an old power structure where everything was neatly organized and, and there was a hierarchical way of doing things to something that is actually much more organic where people are just drawn to the work and we get a different kind of reward for it. There's a social capitalism, that, uh, social capital um, that comes from investing your time and energy this way. But what we realized in order for that team to work successfully, part of what has been drawn is A, we had a real clear sense of purpose. We really Really are drawn to this way of thinking, and we have very shared values about how we work. Uh, we were talking today about, and no one came together when we did this and said, "Who's the president of the group, right? And who's the such and such of the group?" We all just had complementary skills, recognized how they could be, you know, um, put together to do this work, um, and have been very. Um, we have a certain structure. I mean, we meet every week kind of a thing. But other than that, um, it really trust has become a really key part of it. So I think it was like based, if you think about the train tracks are carrying and the fuel is trust, uh, we are all like very guided to building a movement that gets us to a destination in a way that involves more and more people. What we're really trying to do is create more people to come to the work. So a long-winded way of trying to answer that question. <laughs> no, it's great. I guess I'm curious as you come together in this loose way, are, are there are there norms or things that you you talked about the caring and, and the trust? But I'm curious if there's like norms around the, the the logistics or the physics that that you how, like how you're conducting the meetings or. I know you know it's a very it's a great great question, and we, we actually literally spent time today trying to to examine it and trying to figure out what has made this work so successfully. And I think that at the end of the day, it's really shared values. We have a very we have a. a Two things, I guess. We, we have a shared viewpoint about how or, um, distributed organizations can work. We have all come from various backgrounds uh, that have given us some confidence and experience around that. And, and leadering actually has you know been written a lot to champion that. So I think that we didn't have to like figure out how to teach each other that. We all had some sort of way of being able to have confidence around that. I guess the, this is the way, this is the metaphor that I've been using, is that CPS created this really dense, really brilliant, really heavy 
you know, vehicle slash object that sits at the bottom of a hill. And they just haven't been able to get it up the hill because it is so intense and so dense. And so along came us and go, hey, wait a second, we can build a much lighter car. I'll bring the steering wheel, you bring the chassis. Hey, I've got some wheels. Hey, that's awesome. Like, let's make sure. And we all together built this amazing lighter weight, but pretty you know effective thing that gets it up the hill. And what we're going to realize at some point is people are going to go, oh my gosh, you know what? The car is great. I want to be in the car too. And so we'll pull more and more people. At some point, we're going to go, wait, actually, we really need a train. And we're going to, hey, cool, let's have a train. So as I was thinking about that, I'm like, well, God, do I need to worry about if the car has an accident? Somebody needs to have insurance for this thing? Like, does there need to be like a legal structure for all this? And do we have, are we holding this thing with the right responsibility? And what I guess I've found from having been part of the TEDx world is that when you build something with such a strong sense of purpose and shared values, the community comes together to take care of it. Right. So in the TEDx world, yes, you have to be a licensee, but there's not a big, strong rule book around all this stuff. Right. And if things start to go rogue, the community actually goes and helps self-police it, just like it does in nature. It kind of swarms in to say, wait a second, this is kind of like an, you know, a sort of an outlier. Let's figure out how to move the outlier and and, and putting it back into the, the, the form that is best for um, the overall system. So what we're finding is what are the system dynamics that hold it as opposed to the organizational structures that hold things. And I think that's the kind of literacy we need to all become much more fluid in. And we're not yet, but we're learning to. Um, and I'll just give you know, one more shout out to there's this, uh, I just did an interview for our Femme Futurist series with an evolutionary biologist and organizational strategist. I love the fact that she's figured out a way to combine those two things. Uh, her name is Tamson Woolley Baker, and it's all about how adaptive systems from nature can teach us about organizational structures in our own world. So I, I'm a big fan of her book, Teeming, T-E-E-M-I-N-G, um, and her work, because I think we are just, at the, again, at the very precipice of learning about how to do this more effectively. Yeah, it's interesting. That's a biomimicry at a level that yes. I don't think I haven't seen explored before. And what a, what a amazing name for that that unison of work. Yeah. Right? You will love it. It's so good. And uh, and she's so great. Like she's so down to earth. She's so amazing. She just bought a, a nature center with eighty five thousand acres where they're going to be pioneering and showing and demonstrating a lot of this work in her space. It'd be a great place actually for these kinds of uh, collaborative events because she's very you know she wants to bring people to this space in order to be able to demonstrate this way of working and thinking together. Incredible. Oh, I keep saying her name wrong. Sorry. It's Tamson Woolley Barker. Tamson Woolley Barker. Awesome. And the book is teeming. Well, before we close out, I did want to hear a little bit from you about leadering. You know, it's come up a few times, but you know, what's the one thing that you think people should know going in, they're going to take the journey, take the leap into reading leadering. What's the one thing they should think about as uh, the big takeaway or that they, that how, how are they going to be transformed when they read leadering? Well, I guess the, 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 here's the, the invitation for the book is that people, again, are looking for the new playbook. I get asked this all the time. Like, what is the playbook for the 21st century? What is the playbook for AI? What is the playbook for tomorrow? And the, the uh, honest answer is that we're no longer in the world of a playbook. We're in a world of practices. How do we build the practices that allow us, again, to be able to sense and respond more effectively? As I said earlier, how do I move away from a map that was prescribed to being able to use a compass and a North Star to be able to take in constant new information? So the book is really a guide to be able to do that. And it really offers a whole range of practices, and each one of the chapters is arranged around a different set of it, around the importance of wonder and curiosity, the wonder, the importance of connection, the importance of building, again, these navigational capacities or what we call adaptability quotient, um, the need to be able to think about things in a more audacious and less incremental way. And we give very specific examples throughout the book of A, why that's necessary, and then B, the organizations and leaders who are doing it really effectively. So the subtext of the book is leadering how visionary leaders play bigger. 
really it's an invitation to how to play big and thrive really the, the thing is that it's designed for thriving and moving from a, an orientation to just win to an orientation to deep caring which allows for all the growth and all the profitability and all the things that we want it's a shift in orientation to be able to hold each other better in this future fantastic well nancy it's been great having you on the show and really f- enjoyed chatting with you and I want to just give you an opportunity to uh, leave our listeners with a final thought. Well, we do invite people to go to leadering.us uh, to be, you know, find out more about the book and find out where you can get it. And hopefully we'll you know, eventually build out more of conversations there because I would love – it's a constant practice. I mean, the hardest part about writing this thing is you're writing a static artifact in a dynamic world. Man, that is hard. Um, and the other thing is to have more compassion for yourself as you're going through this because learning and leading simultaneously is really scary and really hard. But that is the, that is the, the necessary skill set that we need to develop is that we don't wait to learn and then like practice it and then put it into action. We are actually doing it all in real time. So to realize that we can learn those capacities and we can have more compassion for each other along the way. It's been really great having you on the show, Nancy. Thanks a bunch. Thank you so much, Douglas. Good luck with everything this year. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want more, head over to our blog, where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together. VoltageControl.com